Welcome to the FNO InsureTech Podcast, a place where movers and shakers from all points within the insurance ecosystem gather and discuss all things InsureTech. We talk about how technology and innovation are affecting and driving change in the industry. Here are your hosts, Matt D. Fothery, Lee Boyd, and Rob Beller. Well, welcome everybody to another wonderful, exciting, stupendous episode of FNO InsureTech. I am your host, Lee Boyd, along with your other host, Rob, that's you. Oh, Rob Beller. Hey, but but I'm I'm sitting here stunned. Well, why is that, Rob? Because because you're doing the intro. What what's going on here today? Well, today is 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 backwards day, Rob. What <laughs> what in the world do you mean by what's backwards day? Why well, is it backwards day? Because we have actually already recorded our interview with our guest today, but yet the interview is in a little bit of a backwards order. Like we do all of the chit chatting, and like the last question is, "What is your company?" So you fun. mean we didn't start we didn't start out we didn't start out like we normally did. We did the whole thing kind of upside down. So our yeah. intro is upside down. Yeah. I thought you yeah. did a really good job. I thought that was a great intro. Well, thank you. I'm sweating a little bit. I was nervous. <laughs> I I said I'm not gonna do it four or five times, but you know, that's how it goes. So I I I think you did good. You did well, good. So well, now you're supposed you. to now now keep going. Keep going. Okay. We have a little more work to do here in this intro. Keep going. A little more work, a little more work. So today uh, we have Brad Weisberg, founder and CEO of Snapsheet. And in fact, he is our third guest from Snapsheet. Yeah, we really wanted to do uh, a good job for the auto side of the PNC world as well. And we understand that there's a lot of insure tech in the auto side. And so we wanted to... Uh, get on top of that the best we can. And because we've uh, covered the company well by having uh, Jamie Yoder and Alex Meisner on from Snapsheet previously, we took a whole different approach today with Brad. Like Lee was saying, we we didn't really talk about uh, up front, tell us what Snapsheet does, tell us what your products are, but rather tell us about your journey. Yeah, it was a great interview, and I'm excited to share it with everybody. And it's really an insight into Brad's world, into even why he made some of the decisions, some of his uh, struggles along the way, some of his great successes, lessons learned. It's a really good interview today. Mm -hmm. He shares many insights about growing a company, creating a company, working, uh, being influenced and mentored by people. Uh, working yeah. with a board and working with insurance carriers. So I think that for all of our audience, all parts of our audience, VC, um, uh, other insure techs, carrier types, there's a lot in here for all of you today. And uh, and that's really exciting. And so we celebrated it by letting Lee do the intro. Yeah. Well, thank you, Rob. I guess it'll be another 77 episodes till that happens again. Yeah, don't get used to it, buddy. No, no. I don't think, I know, don't think that's I happening. My place. I know my Get place. back in your corner. And now, without further ado, we'll give you our interview with Brad Weisberg, co-founder and CEO of Snapsheet. 
you know, we know, and one of the things we want to talk about today is you're a serial entrepreneur. And I consider myself that even though I've been involved in my startup that I've been in now for nine years, right? Kind of like you for a long time. And I like the early days. I like the fun and excitement of the first few years, not so much the operational, you know, when it kind of becomes more regular and more established. Mm -hmm. The early days are fun, I think. Yeah. It's exciting, you know, it's exciting. You're up late at night and you wake up early in the morning because you got to get to it. Yeah. Off of pure passion and excitement for your idea, your, your, your baby. And, and fear and, and complete. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Total 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 panic. panic. Yeah. Total panic and fear and uh, beauty. That's the fun part. Right. And then, you know, when we, you can stand up in a room and literally talk to your entire team and you can literally change your entire business model by, by snapping your fingers as opposed to how it is today where it's like, I have all hands meeting after this and we had to prepare two weeks ahead of time and we have to get everybody's schedule. And, and there's just a whole lot more preparation and, and process to, to do something than, than there used to be. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Make decisions, right? It's bigger. It's bigger, but bigger can't be better. Right. Yeah. And a lot of times it is bigger, better. So Yeah. Well, it's a different journey and education mm-hmm. in life. And so anyway, so we're going to kind of go down that road since we've had a couple people on. We've kind of talked about the company some and what you do, though I'm sure we'll oh. recap some on that. But we also want to talk about the J-Mom and, okay. and body shop bids and, you know, sure. what it was like to get from point A to point B. And, and one of the interesting things, I mean, we are officially an InsureTech podcast mm-hmm. and- you guys are like a granddaddy in the InsurTech world. Yeah, uh-huh. we are. We started the company before InsurTech was even a word. That's right. right. So, exactly. So, exactly. Yeah. I mean, and us, I mean, we work almost all on the property side, but we're real familiar with the auto side. And there was no, in, what is this InsurTech thing? But there were a few companies that were involved in technology and you guys were one of them. So that's cool. Yeah, we I like to feel like we are trailblazers in the industry, even though there are some that came before us, yeah, like insurance right. and you know, and, and some others. Yeah, or even you know, a decade before that. But I, I feel like we were just a year or two ahead of when there was like major, major institutional investors pouring billions of dollars in capital into the industry. Was that tough raising money for this model before it was a word? Oh yeah. Because, you know, we were meeting with, you name it, in the Valley, like, you know, the, the you know, Andreessen's and Sequoia's and, and Greylock's and all of them. And, you know, you, you start talking about insurance, let alone claims in insurance. And it's just like, <laughs> there's it's the door, like, you know, <laughs> yeah, their eyes, it's just blank stare looking right over you. Because, you know, they invest in a lot of times in like themes, you know, like, you know, cloud-based technology or, you know, food delivery businesses. You know, it's not every day that, that someone's coming in there pitching them how you can digitize a claims process and, you know, automate away, you know, a lot of, a lot of things to create a better experience for folks. And there's so many intricacies in our industry when it comes right. to, you know, the, the, the carriers, you know, the, the way the carrier prices a risk versus, you know, the workflow of a customer, either going to a staff appraiser or going to a body shop or having a third party come in and says, I mean, there's just so many different things. And it's, there was a lot of education, a lot. And it was painful. <laughs> I mean, I like we had, you know, we've now raised something like $71 million in the lifespan of the entire company. 
And there had to have been, you know, 300 no's, mm-hmm. you know, to get to that number. Like, I mean, yeah. literally, and like, and it's not just like I have a phone call with one person. It's a no. It's like I prepare for a pitch. I meet for a pitch. There's follow-up meetings. Sometimes there's three or four or five or six follow-up meetings, right? And there's still no's. But all, all, all it takes is to get to that one yes. And we've had plenty of, of really strong funds invest in us and, uh, you know, that get it, that, you know, that, that understand the industry and, uh, and off to the races you go. How long did it take you to get the first round of funding from the time you set out to get it? I literally had nothing. I had like no money. And I like scrapped together to build like an MVP of our product. And I was able to get in front of some folks here in Chicago, Brad Keywell and Eric Wachowski, the founders of Groupon and Interworkings and Ecologistics. And they've taken a bunch of companies public in the last 20 years. But I was able to get in front of them with my dumbed down process and product. And I was able to pitch them the idea. And I think it took me about six months to close the first round from like the first pitch because <laughs> they wanted to see it evolve. And um, eventually, once we were able to get them to lead the round, we also brought in other investors. We brought in you know, the Pritzkers, JB, who's wow. now the governor of Chicago, and then yeah, OCA. Right. And then back at the time, you know, there was a bunch of other like small funds on the coast, like 500 startups. And, which is, I don't even know if they're still, you know, 500 startups, I don't know if they're still even around, but it took a while. And then every single time we've raised, I always thought that, oh, we've hit that next hurdle. I know what I'm doing, right? It's it's not my first rodeo. I've been through the process. Yeah. I should be able to do it like from six months down to, you know, five months or four months. And every time I'm dead freaking wrong. (laughs) It's like, it always takes anywhere between, I'd say like, six and nine months to actually get a deal closed because there's just, you know, a lot of, unless you're doing like an inside round or something like that, there's just education and there's diligence and nothing moves as fast as you want. I mean, it's crazy. I thought after the first couple of million dollars that that was all the money I was ever going to need. Sure. How how naive I was back then. Uh, (laughs) Now being 70 million in and realizing, you know, you can all, you could always pour more capital in it for, you know, product and sales and marketing and, was it kind of scary? I mean, you're like raising all this money, which has to come with it a lot of responsibility and expectation. Yeah. And and you're done and all of a sudden like here here's a check for, you know, all these zeros and you're like, oh, "Yeah. Oh shit, now I have to do something." <laughs> now I have to actually yeah. <clears throat> yeah, not only that, it's like not only here's the check, but oh, I've given you a step up in valuation. And I want to get my money back in three to five years. So, you know, I, I want to see you, you know, grow three to five X where you are today. And that's my expectation. I wouldn't necessarily say I ever felt it was scary. Maybe I did, you know, after the first round when, you know, every, all my hard work was, you know, coming together. I think that like to be an entrepreneur, you just have to be really good at um, putting blinders on. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, a horse running in the Kentucky Derby. I'm from Kentucky. So I'm, you know, I'm very fond of, of, of the, the race and horses and all that. But like they put on, you know, these blinders, so they can't see to the horses to the left or the right. They can only see through their vision, which is straight. Mm-hmm. And you go through so much rejection just to even get to like starting a company and talking to people and everyone telling you how your ideas sucks and they would never use it. It doesn't make sense that you have to just kind of have this, this, 
inner drive and passion, unlike most people could ever actually um, stomach. And so uh, to be successful, you just have to, you know, because you get literally beat up and kicked down and you just have to get up the next day and keep right. going and, and keep your head in and plow through. So I think when I raised money, I was just kind of, I was like, okay, I, I achieved that goal. Now what's my next goal? Like on to the next thing. Like, okay, look, you're able to do that. Now let's, let's just keep going. So, you know, of course I always feel a lot of pressure to return money to my investors when the time comes for us to exit. But I wouldn't say it's any more pressure than it is to win a deal or to make sure my team is working, you know, at optimal capacity and, op you know, working well together and, and, and all the other things that come with building a company. Tell me about this. I always wonder whenever you start a company, you started, you know, over nine years ago, is it exactly the way uh, you envisioned it today or, <laughs> or is it pivoted and changed? And talk, talk to us about that. Yeah, I, I will say. So when I, the original investors that I took capital from, like the, the guys that started LightBank, you know, they invested in a company that was called Body Shop Bids, which was a B2C two-sided marketplace for folks that were not going through insurance could like literally take photos of their car and get estimates from local body shops. And so it was kind of like a customer acquisition platform for body shops. And it was also a way for folks, you know, that wanted to, to, to get an estimate on their car to do it without leaving their house. And when I raised the first round of, of capital from Brad and Eric, I remember sitting down with Brad and he looked at me and he was like, great idea. You know, I see your vision. He goes, I will be shocked if your company resembles anything close to what it is right now that I'm giving you money for in the end. And I'm like looking at him, I'm like, well, uh, okay, that makes absolutely no sense to me because you're yeah. investing in this idea that I'm pitching you. And boy, was he right. I mean, like we are, you know, there's nothing that resembles that first pitch deck, you know, to us changing our business model to from B2C to B2B from us not going after folks that are paying out of pocket and specifically focusing on selling technology to insurance carriers um, to automate their processes and digitize their processes. And, and I mean, you name it, just the, the, the type of people that I had, I had salespeople that were, you know, that were signing up body shops onto my platform to now I've got, you know, B2B software sales folks that, you know, their background is just, you know, nine day different. So, you know, I think, most successful companies are constantly pivoting and they're always challenging themselves to do things different and to find a better way. And there's got to be a better way. We say that at Snapchat all the time. And that's what we've done over the last 10 years. I'm interested in the growth of a CEO um, in this regard. So whenever it was 10 years ago, you're a dreamer. I guess you had an accident or something, and that kind um, of what kind of what motivated it. You saw how broken the whole process is, right? And, yep. Or the opportunities there. So you're you're an entrepreneur. You're you're a dreamer, and you've had to go from there to now. You're the CEO of a of a company that has hundreds of people working there. Talk about CEO school, and and I'm something that I'm sure you couldn't have fully seen ten years ago of what uh -huh. your life is going to be like today. Um, yeah. Cause you thought, no chance. well, I'll always, I'll always be cleaning the toilets. Tell us about that journey. Yeah. So I think you have to be really open to like evolving and adapting who you are for the situation and for the size and scale of the company. And I don't necessarily think you can do it alone. 
if I, um, you know, I think that I have learned the most from executives that I've hired to work with me who went to business school, like University of Chicago um, or Northwestern, um, or um, or have that were very high up in other like, you know, Fortune 500 companies, public companies, and understood the difference between a startup and like a, a well fine-tuned oil machine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Having surrounding myself with those types of people, because you only know what you know, right? From your own life experiences. Exactly. And, and by bringing folks like that on that understand that you haven't been through it and that part of their job is to, is to, take the company from where it is to the next level and build those processes and, and add the communication and help you build the culture and amplify your message in a much more structured way is one of the most important things that you can do for your company, but also one of the most important things you can do for the growth of yourself and, 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 and help you become the best CEO you can be. I'd say the other like really important person in my life uh, who's helped me become a better CEO would be my lead director on our board. So um, he's an independent board member. His name is Dennis Jukasian. He teaches actually board governance at University of Chicago. Wow. And he was the CFO, CTO, CEO of CNA Insurance for wow. like, you know, I don't know, 10 years or something wow. like that. Big jobs. Yeah. And he's been, he was an early investor in Guidewire and literally like you name the, the, the insure tech that has been successful and he somehow touched it or had a hand in it or, you know, started it or what have you. But he's always been a great sounding board and a guide for me. And he's always given me advice that was, um, unfiltered, right? And he'll always say, I'm always going to tell you the truth and I'm never going to say anything with the intent to make you mad or hurt your feelings, but this is the way it is. And, and you have to kind of take it for what it's worth. And you either, you know, believe me and listen to my, my feedback or you don't. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he would always say that there's different levels of executives and you have to kind of grow into the next level. And a, and a lot of times when companies fail is when the, the CEO can't make that next, that, that leap to the next step because it is totally different. Like we were saying before, I mean, you know, being able to design out your product and, you know, do user testing and getting feedback from your customer versus, you know, running a company of hundreds of people and having management meetings every morning. It's just, there's, it's just a totally different skill set, and it's not for everyone. And so, you know, you have to be, you know, willing and work to continue to evolve your own skill set. Just because you were good at one, doesn't mean you're good at the other. Exactly. I remember years ago, you don't hear about it so much anymore because today I think there's an expectation for founders or co-founders to be the CEO and to stay the CEO. But but right. you have all kinds of examples, most notably maybe Google, right? Who, you know, was founded by the two co-founders, but then they brought in Eric Schmidt and mm-hmm. he, he totally changed everything because mm-hmm. I think that they were insightful enough to realize that, geez, we need a pro to do this. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, and it's an entirely different story. I had a conversation with, you know, Eric Lukowski, who is now the, the founder and CEO of Tempest, but he was, you know, Brad's co-founder for Lightbank. And, 
you know, they started, you know, literally three companies that they took public. And I think they were only on the management team of one of those companies. I think it was Echo Logistics when it went public. And that was one of the first ones. And they said that after they, you know, after they were working in the in a public company environment for a couple of months, they said it was miserable. And that yeah. it just it wasn't for them. And so, you know, I'd had a conversation with Eric maybe about a year ago. And he was like, Brad, there's never any shame at any point in time and you know, in finding a replacement and moving on. He's like, Look, I've taken three companies public. I wasn't the CEO of any of them, and my life is great. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so it's uh so there's definitely something to be said for, you know, for that and for being um, so having the self-awareness of putting the company first and always putting the company in the position to be successful, whether that's with or without you. Which isn't, I mean, that's, and that's not easy to do because we all have egos. No. Yeah, we do all have egos, but you know, if you were to, if, if my board would come to me tomorrow and said that there's somebody who could get us to, you know, whatever goals we had set, you know, over a three to five year period, you know, faster, right? Like years quicker with a yeah. you know, better track record background. Like I would absolutely be open to the conversation just because it is all about the company and it's all about my team and the people and setting them up for success and for life. Yeah. And talking about life cycles, I want to ask you a question about culture. So whenever you're a, a startup early in the game, culture is one thing. Talk to me about how has the culture of your company changed with growing from just you to 400 plus employees? Oh my God. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard to sustain the type of culture that you had and the, the excitement for the business. I mean, it's just like, think about it. Like when you go from zero, you know, from one to, to 50 people, I literally interviewed everyone, right? Yeah. And I would hire people that had the same character characteristics that I felt like I had, but also I would hire people that were not like me, but still somehow like believed in my my thought process and my vision. And, you know, our first couple of holiday parties, it was like we would just we we went to this, you know, hole in the wall, you know, place and got crab legs. And yeah. there's, you know, 10 people around the table and every, you know, and you really build that sense of community and you're just a team, right? More than you've ever been. And so as we started to get bigger, we would have to do more things to remind everyone of why we're here and the culture that we've set and, and, and kind of get folks to do things day in and day out that also fit into, you know, you know, what the, the meaning of the company and why they're here. And so I remember super early on, we did this thing where we ran a workshop where it was literally just one of our call center reps was super into this type of stuff and came to me and was like, Hey, you know, I feel like we need some, you know, we need some pillars of the company. We need, you know, we need a reason for why we're here. And I was like, sure. Yeah, let, let, let's do it. Like, I don't see why we wouldn't. We ordered some pizzas and some beer after work one day and we had everybody stay after there's probably, I don't know, 30, 40, maybe 50 people in the company, maybe. And we all sat around and we, we, we wrote on little post-it notes. We split up in groups and we wrote like, what does work mean to you? What does life mean to you? Like, what does insurance mean to you? Like, and we went through this whole process where everybody kind of wrote out what, what life and work meant to them and relationships meant. And we put them all over the wall. And then we started grouping them up into like pairings and like categories of like where we saw like recurring themes and the way people think. 
And over the course of, and so we were there for hours and hours. And then over the course of like maybe another month or two, like she would hold like workshops, you know, maybe one a week to help us kind of still continue to pull out like what our core values were. And, and in the end, we did this like grand surprise where I didn't know that she was going to do this, but she named them the Brads, which, which I didn't know because <laughs> I'm not that full of myself. Um, but it was really cool. It was like, so it's uh, be the next, remember the feeling, action is our first instinct, do the right thing and stronger united. And that was really, really, really important to us scaling the business and being able to keep a, a strong culture, like a tight knit culture, um, like into the future, because mm -hmm. we could then base everything off of the brads. And like, when you come to work, when you're making decisions, are you using the brads? Are you thinking about, you know, being the next? Are you thinking about when someone gets in a wreck and you're talking to them on the phone? Remember the feeling if you've ever been. So, you know, it was a defining moment in the company that we still actually use today. But it's also, but it's more than that, right? It's like early on, I could just stand up and I could talk to everybody in the company and I could, we could, if there's uh, something good that happened, happened, someone had a good phone call or whatever, everyone heard about it. But as we started scaling the company and getting to three, four, you know, a hundred plus folks, you know, we've got teammates that sit all across the country. We're in 35 different states. Most of the company is remote. And so you have to spend a lot of time and effort to keep the culture strong. And right. so what once was done in person, now you have to figure out how do you keep this culture in a, in a virtual environment, which we have been doing for years and years and years now. And so, you know, where we used to do, you know, we give out, you know, we have like LaCroix and all the startup-y stuff, you know, we buy lunch, <laughs> and, you know, for folks and all that, but mm -hmm. you're, you're not able to do that for people that work from home. So we would send care packages every single month that would have different themes, you know, like one of them would be like a, you know, a taco themed and we'd send like, you know, things to make tacos and like little surprises every single month to remind the people that were working from home that we were thinking about them. And we started doing a lot more. We used to do this thing called a hump day huddle where every single Wednesday I would record just what was going on in my life, what I was working on, what the management team was working on. Cool. That's cool. And everyone could watch it. Right. That's and there cool. wasn't always, there wasn't always like something that was like super important that would come out of it, but it was just a way to continue to stay engaged with the folks that were working from home that, that continue to feel the, you know, remember like why they were there and be able to, to get a glimpse into what, you know, why, you know, what I was working on and why it was important for everybody to, to be a part of it because, you know, it takes a village uh, yeah, to build right. a successful company. And, it, it, you know, and, and, and any one person is honestly, for the most part, replaceable. And you need everybody working together to achieve, you know, your, your goals and your dreams. And so, you know, it changes a lot. And now in this world that we live in today, you know, with the coronavirus and everyone's been forced to work from home, I feel like our culture has been even stronger. I've spent more time mm -hmm. on we do like breakfast with brads and breakfast with executives where, you know, we just have 10 folks. Uh, we'll do like a zoom or a Google hangout and we'll just talk for an hour about what's going on in my world. What, what they're working on, things that are going well, challenges in their day to day. And I've spent more time over the last probably 60 days with team members at Snapsheet than I have probably in the last two years, because we've been on a pretty, pretty strong sprint where I feel like I've almost been kind of in a bubble besides like our quarterly town halls and, and working with the folks on my team day to day. And it's been awesome. And the feedback afterwards of these just, you know, one hour breakfast with folks in the, in the company has been amazing. And they're just like, Oh, wow. I didn't, you know, I didn't realize this about so-and-so or, 
you know, it just felt good to like get to spend time with other people and not, yeah. you know, because people do start to feel isolated in their homes. And so all of that adds to your culture, adds to the type of, uh, you know, the type of atmosphere you want to build for your company. And, you know, and then at a certain point, you got to expect that, you know, others around you are, are continue to, to beat the same drum and do the same thing. So it sounds like you kind of have learned that culture is far more deliberate. Is, is that fair to say that, that you have to work on it? I'm sure that when you were 10 people, it was kind of just, it was there. It was, it was there, right? Because it was us. Right. And then as right. you scale, but, you have to, literally, it's almost like a project. You, you have to make sure that you're hitting your deliverables and that you're constantly working on it. Yeah, it, it takes work. Cool. I want to shift back to talking about your board for a minute. Sure. A, a lot of our listeners work for insurance companies, and so they probably don't have a real good consciousness or understanding about what a board does for you, why you have a board. You're not a public company. Right. And the value, but like you've already talked about how, you know, one of your board members has really helped you grow as a CEO. But could you tell us for a minute about, you know, why do you have a board and what does it do? And what kind of people do you put on it? Sure. My board is 100% built off of institutional investors and strategic investors and independent directors. And so the way that I've built my business was from raising money from venture capitalists. And typically when you do a round of funding, you know, they put together a board of directors that helps you kind of like approve your strategy. So I come to the board and I, I let them know what I, I want to do with the company and the, uh, the strategic direction I want to take it. And so they guide me with their experience of what they've been through and what they're comfortable with. And then they also are there to approve major decisions, whether it's from hiring an executive, their comp package, to taking on you know debt from a bank, to everything in between. And they're also there to give you feedback on your business as you're growing. And so a lot of folks are able to structure boards around their types of business. And so, you know, like I said, we have strategic investors on our board. We have institutional investors. And, you know, like for instance, you know, as we were building out our technology, our software, our platform, our claims platform and our appraisals platform, you know, we wanted to get some more guidance and feedback from someone who, you know, who had worked with lots of software. And so we came across a woman, her name is Sheila Gulati. She runs a firm called Tola Capital. She worked at Microsoft for, I don't know, 15 to 20 years or something like that. And so all she knew was software. And so when we were out raising capital, this was maybe you know, three or four years ago, we were specifically looking for someone who had experience building software companies. And like Bill Gates was one of you know her, her, her biggest LPs, um, Stanford Endowment, all that. But bringing someone like her on, um, gave us more credibility and also helped us as we were building out our platform, whether we, you know, if we were structuring it right from a people perspective, were we thinking about our go to market because, you know, selling software is totally different than selling a claim service, right? right? It's a different yeah. sales process. You're selling to different people. And so having, having someone like her on our board, um, really helped us build out kind of like our go-to-market and also, you know, you know how we were thinking about building the platform. And then, you know, so like our board, you know, we have, uh, you know, LightBank. So one of our first investors is a board seat, like F-Prime, Fidelity Capital has a board seat. And then we also have independent 
directors. And so these are folks that I bring on along with the approval of the other board members. And so our two independents honestly give me uh, a, uh, probably the largest chunk of like the of real tangible guidance to, to building my business because they're both, they've both been operators in our industry. So I mentioned one of them, which is Dennis Chikasian, who's the lead, lead director who has you know, been on many, many, many public and private boards and, and also was in the industry for a while. But then my, my other independent, his name's Howard Tolman. And so he was the founder of CCC Information Services, which was the, I, I believe it's the sure. largest you know, I, I think estimating you're right. platform. I think they have like, I don't know, 70, 80, 90% market share in the US. But he's also started and sold or taken public you know, three or four or five other companies. So he is, he in his own right, he's a serial entrepreneur. And so the feedback and advice that I get from them is just, it's so good because there's no substitute for experience, right? right? And they just, if you've been through it and seen it and been a part of it multiple times, like when I'm talking to them, there's nothing I can ever throw at them that they are not like, oh, I've seen it with this <laughs> or I went through this yeah. 19, you know, 94. Sure. I mean, literally like everything and it's awesome yeah. and it is priceless i mean it's like invaluable like you can't get that from from just a typical investor who just invests in companies but doesn't actually operate in in real time and deal with that stuff so you know your board is kind of like they're my boss right and they you know and i have to run a lot of things by them but if you've got a good board they they work with you and they kind of let you do what you know they they invested in me and they've invested in my guidance to the management team and, and, and our vision. And so, you know, I think the best boards are, are, are hands off, but are also there to push you to, uh, you know, to make the right decisions. And a lot of times our board has pushed us when we've wanted to spend money on something that they might not have thought was as important. They really give you kind of that gut check and they make you, they make you really, you know, uh, uh, portray you know, why it is you want to spend this money on this and the, and the, the return on the investment and really make you think twice about it. And a lot of, you know, there's been some times where, you know, we've pulled back on things and they were a hundred percent right. And, and, and we wouldn't have done that. We might've wasted, you know, a couple of months on some silly side project without having, you know, kind of this, you know, this, this other party pushing back on you. So, you know, our board's been fantastic. Whenever you're hiring somebody to fill a, an executive role, it sounds like you go out and find somebody who already has the knowledge, probably a higher price person versus bringing somebody on and training them up and maybe paying them a, a little less. Am I right in my thought there? Uh, no, I think it just depends okay. on the size of the stage, right? So when when you're starting out, like I didn't have any money. I had very, very little money. So I'm regardless, even still to this day when I'm hiring executives, they're not coming on making what they were making before, right? They're taking, you know, the, the, the play is, is that it's, it's, it's a salary, of course, but it's also equity. And okay. in the early days, like you just, no matter how much equity you give someone, like you don't have enough money to hire somebody who's super seasoned that has all the experience. Um, so you have to, for the first couple of years, like, uh, you know, unless you're a serial entrepreneur that has like, you know, the experience and someone would be willing to take that risk, you're going to build your company off of folks that, that are either new to the industry or are someone in your immediate network that you went to college with or something like that. And there's a really high likelihood that those folks don't make it throughout the entire life of the company because 
those are the folks that put in the blood, sweat, and tears to get you from the idea phase to getting some, you know, to an MVP, to getting some customers on your platform, to proving out your business model and, and, and getting it to the point where it's ready to scale. But, you know, but what I've learned is that those folks that get you from zero to say 10 million in revenue are not necessarily the folks to get you from, you know, 10 to 25 million. And then the folks to get you to 25 to 50 are not necessarily the ones to get you to a hundred and 150. And so it, it changes over time. Different so, you skill know, where sets. different skill set, right? Like, yeah, exactly. Different skill set, different experience, experience. Um, and, you know, a lot of times it's different age. Yes. different age bracket and uh-huh. and so it, it's definitely different and it definitely changes at the size and the scale of, of your business you know you were really early to insure tech and we were talking before about how when you started there wasn't a word the word insure tech hadn't been invented yet right or used yet and talk about what it was like to come with an idea that I mean, relative to today, if you came with the idea that of Snapsheet today, you'd be one of many insure techs. But right. you came to it at a time when really there wasn't even conversations about this. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody yep. knew that we should have automation and digitization and those kinds of things should be coming into to the claim space. Uh-huh. But like we work mostly on the property side, so there was exact where mm-hmm. and there was stability. There were the estimating mm-hmm. platforms, but that was pretty much it in insure tech. Right. I'm sure it was that way in the auto side. There were the there were the the estimating platforms. But you mm-hmm. came with a whole new idea that no one else, as far as I know anyways, was doing. That that must have been really interesting. I'm also interested in in I mean how how many insurers laughed at you. Yeah. Right. Or, or said you, what, wait, uh, thank you for the presentation. What are you talking about? Yeah, not, not only do they laugh at me, but the fact that I am not from the industry, I know nothing about fixing cars. They I know hate nothing it. about estimating on cars. They hated that. They were like, yeah, not only do they hate that, but they're like, what are you doing here? I mean, like when I was, I remember one time I was pitching a, a top five carrier, like maybe like, I don't know, I somehow got a meeting like a year into it. And they were asking me like very detailed questions about repairing a vehicle and how, you know, how you could possibly do that from, you know, but, you know, from a photo and, and being able to see, and I had no clue what they were talking about, none. And they literally like threw me out of their, their building. And, <laughs> and, and now looking back at it, it's like, you know, of course I should have known that, but like, you can't ever expect to know everything before you start something. Otherwise you'll never get off the ground. So, you know, early on it was tough. I mean, like I was, I had a lot of pitches with carriers that were like, Oh, you absolutely can't write estimates from photos. Even though I talked to many estimators who said that they've been doing it with Polaroid cameras for years and years. And it just was like an unspoken thing that you didn't tell your boss you did, but yes, you can write as accurate of an estimate from photos. So, I mean, it was, it was definitely challenging. And I mean, there was even a, even within carriers, right? Like, the way that you build the business early on is you have to talk to everyone and you have to find the early adopters within these big organizations that are willing to take just a little bit more risk than like what the typical person would do. Mm-hmm. And, and we found those early adopters and it's literally, it's like, it's typically like one person in, a, in an organization who's willing to stick their neck out and mm-hmm. try something because the unfortunate thing about the culture we live in and especially in insurance is you're not rewarded for, um, you know, for taking, <laughs> taking risk. risk. No, in fact, <laughs> right. in fact, 
the opposite. Exactly. In fact, it's the opposite. And so you'll have your guy or girl who will take you in and, and, and try something with you, but they will have tons of internal blockers that don't believe in it, that will push back, that will do everything they can to kill that, you know, that person's pilot or their idea internally. And I remember we had a strategic investor, an insurance carrier invest in us with a, a sizable check, you know, back in the day. And at the closing dinner, which was a celebration of, you know, we've closed the deal docs, we've funded you, we're super excited about Snapsheet and where are you all going. At dinner, there was a guy there who shook my hand, who was in charge of an entire business line. And he said, you know, congratulations on the investment. We will never work with you. Like his side, right? And this is at the, the celebration dinner. And I'm just like, good God, this is, you know, but that is what you have to go through. And that's what you have to persevere through in order to be successful is like, even, even today, every step of the way, like we still, you know, we've got over 90 plus carriers that we work with and we'll still have to pilot to prove ourselves out yes. with some of these small carriers that, yes. and that's like, you know, just having, I don't know, 15 or, or 10 or whatever, the top 25 carriers, not enough to tell you that this, this works and like people want this. Can't I just give you the phone number of somebody at four other carriers? We're like, as a claims organization, we are bigger than most of the companies that we work with. If they were to put a hundred percent of their claims through our platform, I mean, like, cause we have so many customers and we're processing so many claims a year, but you know, everyone does feel like individually that their claims are, are different and I've got no problem having, you know, doing a pilot. Right. But it's just the, still the skepticism after a decade of doing this is, is sometimes it does blow my mind. And, and now a lot of folks are like, well, why do you even need it? Like, why can't it all be done, you know, automated, you know, with AI and visual recognition. And so it, it's, it's amazing how, you know, how, how long I've been pushing to, 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 to get to this point. And some folks still don't believe it. And then other folks are like, well, why do you even need humans anymore? You know, why don't we just use technology? So, you know, there are a lot of carriers, some of them are always chasing the next thing and it's, it's a journey. One of the things that is interesting is, is that every carrier, like you said, nobody does claims the way that we do. That's a paraphrase of something that both us and you have heard many times, but it is true that often their workflows are, are different. So you have 90 carriers. Do you have 90 workflows? Yeah, we do. That is definitely wow. true. Wow. Every carrier we work with does things a little bit different. But the difference in their workflow doesn't actually have a material impact on their customer experience. Absolutely not. Definitely not. But the way that we're able to do that is with technology. That's where your tech stack comes in. Exactly. Our results are consistent, whether we're working with a non-standard or a, or a high net worth carrier. Our cycle times are exactly the same, no matter the customer. Our severity, mm -hmm. our accuracy, our indemnity, like everything is exactly the same. And it's not because we grow superhumans in Snapsheet. It's because our platform levels the playing field and does most of the work. And and that's often one of the, we're independent adjusters. And I mean, in a way, you guys are kind of independent adjusters. For, for a piece of our business, yes. For the appraisals business, yes. For a piece. And I understand that your your product offerings are broader than that now. But, you know, one of the things that carriers want is they want the experience and the product to be just like the one that they would do themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's always, yeah. you know, one of the struggles that we have is, is giving them mm -hmm. that back so that they feel like it just came from them. But it sounds like your technology 
is really what what delivers that for you guys and makes that happen for you guys. Yeah, our platform is configurable. So we can build literally workflows on the fly and you know, you can change the messaging through the web app, through the app, through text messaging, through emails, through everything, right? So we can you can make it feel like it, everything is coming from that carrier and they have their own kind of touch to it. But every carrier has a different set of guidelines, right? Of, and, and what they're willing to repair, what they're willing to replace. And it all comes from your policy. And a lot of times, you know, when repairing a vehicle, that's where kind of the rubber meets the road. And, and as, you know, from an independent appraisal perspective, like every carrier's uh, guidelines, you have to knock those out of the park. You have to be, you know, you have to, to, to write exactly to, to, to what's written in their policy. Otherwise, that's where you really get burned. And, and you know, we get audited by you know, every every carrier, every which way. And we are, you know, time and time sure. again, as accurate or more accurate than, you know, than, than body shops than you know, staff appraisers as accurate and, and typically much more accurate than independence. And again, it's not because of our people. It's because of the, it's because of the technology that we've built that guides our people. It makes it really simple for them to make those right choices. So let me ask you a key question. And usually we ask this question first, but today, yeah. At the beginning, I'm, I'm happy to say we're asking it last, and that is, what the heck is Snapsheet? <laughs> what is Snapsheet, anyways? Who the heck are we talking yeah. to? What is your company? And then I, I already have a follow up to that. Give us a minute or two on Snapsheet. High level, what most people know us for is, you know, Snapsheet. We were the pioneer in virtual appraisals. You know, creating the absolute best user experience possible when when someone gets in a car wreck. To be able to take photos from you know from their home or their office and and be able to process your claim in hours, not days. But we've evolved a lot over the last decade, and now you know we offer a, a wide range of cloud native solutions and claims management, appraisals, digital payments, and uh, fleet and asset management. So the services and technology from the kind of the estimating all the way through repairs and payments. You know, we essentially we've digitized the process and created the best user experience for the carrier, customer, and also vendors in the ecosystem. So is that to say that you're kind of an auto TPA? We are not a TPA, so we're not adjudicating claims. Uh, we're not determining mm -hmm. liability on those claims, but we do work with TPAs on the virtual appraisals, mm -hmm. and then we also work with TPAs by licensing them our claim software. What about property? I believe when we spoke to mm -hmm. Alex, he told us that property was either on your roadmap or in your roadmap. Talk to us about where you are with property. Mainly our property offering. It's not, we're not actually estimating property damage, right? It's with our technology. It's with our claims technology. And what we found is when you're, if you just kind of follow a bouncing ball of a claim, an accident happens, a catastrophe happens, something happens. And from there, it needs to be documented what it is that happened. You know, what was damaged, what needs to be repaired, how much it's going to cost to repair, what's the time, and then getting the money to that person or putting them in touch with a vendor or someone who can actually fix fix the problem. So it's not it's not that different from auto, right? Even though auto, everything is done kind of within these four wheels or six wheels or 10 wheels, it's still a box. And, you know, with property, of course, it could be you know, a roof, it could be many other things, but still the workflows are very similar. And so what we've built is a lot of processes within our claims platform 
to work with folks that are filing property claims and, and have property damage. And then our platform is, is like I said, native cloud-based and it's all API driven. So we, you know, we integrate with a bunch of features and functionality in the industry to help along the way, whether it's, you know, getting fraud scores from companies like, you know, Friss or Shift or, you know, integrating with Verisk and some of their tools. Like, you know, when you put it all together, you can digitize a property mm-hmm. claim process and you can drastically cut down on cycle time and create a much better experience for the customer. Give us give us a minute on coronavirus, on, on COVID-19. I mean, it's affected everybody, everything. I mean, there's kind of nothing untouched in our world uh, by this. Um, I'm assuming that you already had a fairly remote workforce, so I s- assume that's even more so today. But tell us, give us a minute on on your thoughts on COVID-19. Yeah, I mean, like, look, like for, like for our industry, like pre-pandemic, you know, we were already headed towards like a digital transformation. Um, and now that the shift is like, it, it's definitely been accelerated. Processing claims virtually is way more important now because you're reducing travel and, you know, as much face-to-face um, interactions and operations as you can. And so we're just seeing a massive amount of interest in all of our digital offerings, which is expected, right? What will the world look like on the other side of this? I think that's still TBD. And I've talked to executives at some of the largest uh, companies in our space who no one actually really knows the answer or has the idea of when things will come back. But we all do agree that things will get back to normal. It's not a matter of if, it's just when. And and you just got to, you know, you have to survive through it, right? And, and you have to continue to focus on building the best experience for your customers using technology. And, you know, you've got, you know, we've seen for just like driving patterns of folks, right? Like we've seen the drop off from the carriers of, you know, 50 to 60%. On a volume, on a, on a volume. On a volume, yeah, exactly. On a volume basis. But mm-hmm. parts of the country are starting to open up. We've already seen, you know, we've seen a major uptick in volume just in the last week, maybe two weeks. And then... I think there's been a couple of universities in the South who have already come out and said that they're going to be holding classes in yeah. the fall. Yeah, ours has. In-person classes. Yeah. And then you've got you know California who said they're canceling through the end of the year. So uh, look, things will come back. It's not going to come back as fast as everyone wants. Um, but uh, when they do come back, folks are going to be driving more. They're going to be taking less public transportation. And, and, uh, and I think that they're going to be, you know, taking vacations, um, you know, within the United States more than they would if they were to go you know, outside the U S or within driving distance. So I think we're going to see miles driven, you know, go through the roof, but it's just going to take some time. Listen, thank you so much. What a, what a pleasure this was. Usually we're way more structured and way more nervous, but I loved the way that we got to touch on all kinds of different, interesting, different topics. So thank you. Well, hopefully I answered your questions. I don't know. I felt like I was kind of all over the place, but you know, maybe that's kind of how these things go. Well, we're, we're satisfied. I'll tell you what, with the magic of editing, we can make anything happen. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Well, this was great. And and, and thank you for, you know, thanks for asking me to be on and thanks for having others on my team on. I I really appreciate it. You got it. Thanks, Brad. All right. Talk to you soon. 
I think that was a really interesting interview. We started that completely different than we normally do, uh, but we got to really learn about him and about his mindset and about the lessons learned. I really enjoyed that today. What did, what did you think, Rob? I wanted to know about his experience that yeah. he's been through in these 10 years. As a very early person in the InsureTech space, one of the first, I guess. And then just what it's like to go through it. I thought that our audience would enjoy that. I mean, several, we know that we're listened to by founders and executives at startups. And I'm sure that they, some of what he had to say, they've experienced and can empathize with. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about what he said about going to raise funds before InsureTech was even a word. That's a scary time going out mm-hmm. and saying, I have this idea, I want to break into this industry that's not really broken into. What a wild ride that had to be. And then for him to say every time he thought it would get easier and it never did. And a different like, world. It, it's tough. Yeah. Right. A, a, a different, different world. world. I mean, t- t- today we live in a world where VC money frequently is chasing startups. It was the opposite then. Kind of like this podcast, the opposite podcast, huh? It is. Today's the opposite day. Mm-hmm. What about... What about the culture? He really excited me when he talked about the culture and how important it is to keep it going uh, the way that he wanted it, even mm-hmm. though his company so large and spread out. It gave me some really good ideas for our own mm-hmm. company culture and just kind of excited me. But like you said, you got to work at it. You know, what did we do to work on our culture today? That has to be in your mindset every day, every week. And I think that's a CEO job. Yeah. I mean, they can have people to help them with that, but it's their job, I think, to make sure that that, that the culture thrives uh, regardless of what's going on in the business. And and now with COVID, it's even harder, right? Or, or, or just yeah. a whole different kind of challenge. Yeah, it's a different kind of challenge. You know, you've got to keep people in the loop, especially if you're a company who has been 90 to 100% in-house mm-hmm. and now you're 8 to 10 to 12 weeks mm-hmm. out and people are, mm-hmm. are away. You can't forget that people still need to be connected with, mm-hmm. still need to feel valued, mm-hmm. and, and you have to work at it every day and every week. Mm-hmm. It was great uh, to talk with Brad and not just to talk about, not just a pitch on Snapsheet, but rather... Um, the journey, the experience, um, and now the know-how. I mean, now he's an experienced executive, an experienced CEO. It's uh, it's pretty cool. I loved what he had to say about his board and about yeah, how he leverages and uses his board. That was really cool. You know, I liked how he told us about how he learned the most from one of his board members, you know, who really was that coach in Rob Mean, you have talked about CEO coaches in the past, but sounds like that board member is a coach to him, gives him honest and open feedback. And, uh, and you have to be open as a, as a leader, you have to be willing to get that feedback, uh, know, know where your weaknesses are so that you can work on them. So, uh, kudos to him. And one of the things that I really heard from Brad today was this is a, this is a mature business leader. Yeah, somebody who understands and has the humility to be able to take a lot of input from a lot of different places and understands that he doesn't have all the answers 
And um, like what he was saying about the way that he's hired executives um, as time has gone by, right? That some people can take you from 10 to 20 million. Other people can take you from 20 to 40, et cetera. Yeah, and, yeah that's um, smart. Um, and it takes humility to, to go out and I'm sure hire people who have all kinds of credentials that he doesn't have. So that, that was really cool. And we're super grateful to him, beyond grateful to visit with us on this sheltered in place Thursday. Yeah. And uh, we'll look forward to having him back on again. What do you say? Oh, I can't wait. Okay. Well, we thank you all for being with us. Thank you for subscribing and supporting us. Let us know what you think about our podcast. If you ever have a chance, you can reach out to us through fnoinsuretech.com. And uh, we'll sign off by saying goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.